Well, we are working our way through the book of Romans, and we're in the second half of chapter 12 today, which is just loaded with enough truth that we could park it right here for four or five weeks. But we're going to get it done in one. But it, it does not break my heart like you might think, because here's what I hope to do. I hope to dig into it in such a way that I just stir it up and make you hungry to go back and dig into this some more on your own. Maybe this is news to you. You can take your Bible and read it and study it on your own without me. You got the Holy Spirit. You got a Bible. So I'm not going to exhaust. This is such a good passage. I intend to just stir it up, but I hope... You will go here some more on your own. You'll look some more things up. Why? Because I think this passage is one of the best passages that we could be digging into right now in light of all that's going on in our culture and our world around us, both politically and all kinds of other ways. It's no secret to anyone, is it? Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian here, no secret to anyone that the divide between Judeo-Christian thinking and values and the secular thinking and values that are, is out there now is a grand chasm apart from each other. And the two sides no longer play nice. Have you noticed that? Don't play nice. The rhetoric and the level of hostility and fear on both sides, as well as the lobbing of verbal grenades back and forth between the two should make it obvious to anybody that we are in a massive culture war. I hope that wasn't news to you. If you got a pulse, you should know that. Here's what I think too few Christians know. It's also obvious to me and breaks my heart. There's something else that too often is just as obvious that I do not think should be there. It looks like too many times, too often, both sides are fighting with the same kind of weapons. Oh, it's quiet now. Christians, Christians using the same strategies as the world to try and win this battle. And so here's why this matters. This passage we're going to look at, get this. This passage we're looking at today, Romans 12, 9 to 21, was written to a group of Christians living in a real city that had the name of Rome. And at the time, Paul wrote them this letter. They were being mocked and marginalized and even persecuted in ways far greater than what we were experiencing yet here in America. So what would Paul say to Christians living in times like these? Turn to Romans chapter 12, beginning of verse 9. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. And oh, my goodness, I hope you have a Bible because I want you to see this for yourself so you can mark it a little bit and go back to it or an app in your lap, whatever, if you know how to highlight and do little stars or whatever. Go here and look at this. It's such good stuff. Romans 12, 9 to 21. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 9. Romans chapter 12. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly 
in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all. If it is possible, look at me, it's not always possible. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, it depends on more than you, but why don't you at least do the right thing, Christian? As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with, say it, say it louder. Yeah, we are in a culture war today. No doubt about it. But what I want to show you from these verses, I want to show you the strategies and priorities that our heavenly father gives us as to how we are to fight this war. And I hope you pick up on it already just from hearing it read that love is at the very heart and center of it. Not hate, not sarcasm, love. Love. So here's the first thing I want you to get from this passage. Number one, it matters how you fight. Do we need more Christians to recognize there is a battle and get in the game? Sure. But we don't need any more Christians to come swarming in thinking we can fight any way we want. The gloves are off. There's no rules. There's no biblical principles. The stakes are so high. We just get as ugly as they do to get it done. So wrong. It matters how you fight. it's a fight it's a fight worth fighting but it matters how you fight and to show you this and to drive home this point to you i'm going to start at the end i'm going to start with verse 21 and then we're going to come back and work our way through 9 to 20 but look at verse 21 surely it rattled you when you heard it because it's radical do not be overcome by evil folks are we not living in a day that you could just be overcome by evil. It's like we know so much and it's so immediate in our information, technology, social media day. You know so much that's bad and how bad it is. It's heinous. It's wicked. I can't believe that happened. How, why would they do that? It's just boom, 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 boom. It would be so easy to be overcome by evil. He says, don't, don't. But overcome Evil, now you think of all the evil that comes to your mind, whatever it is that, that really upsets you the most today, but overcome evil with, say it again. Are you kidding me? 
Now, I, hope it, I don't think it's just me. Would you have ever thought of doing it that way? And don't be some pious thing and say yes, no. The answer is no. No! When you see stuff like that, you think we need stuff like that back. Good sounds so lame. Good, what is that gonna do? We would never have thought of doing it this way. But that's the strategy God gives us. You wanna know why? Because King Jesus is leading us into this battle. And it's an upside down kingdom. So that means the battle is an upside down backwards fight. But don't make the mistake that upside down backwards is wimpy. Oh, no, no, no. Verse 21 doesn't convey anything wimpy. Because here's what I want you to understand. In that little verse 21, two times the Greek word that is used for overcome is the word nika. And it's the root word from which the Greek goddess of victory gets her name, Nike. Does that ring a bell? That's where Phil Knight, the co-founder and and owner, CEO of Nike, took his name. He's not looking for a wimpy word to name his company, right? The giant sporting good company. And when you watch their commercials, Nike commercials, you don't think wimpy. You think, yeah, Nike, Nike. Let's do it, but it matters how we do it. And that leads to my second point. Oh, it matters how you fight, but this might just be a surprising to you. It matters what you feel as you fight. And if you've been around here a while, you might immediately be thinking, Brad, I thought we're the church that taught feelings don't matter. Please shut up. That's not what we teach. I get so tired of hearing that. We don't teach feelings don't matter. We teach what the Bible teaches, that you should not be ruled by your feelings, led by the nose by your feelings, or ever say you can't do anything contrary to your feelings. If God's word says it, you believe it, and you step out in faith, and you seek to do it whether you feel it or not. That's what we teach. Which is what the Bible teaches. Because I hope you know this. On so many of your days and my days, my worst enemy is my own feelings. They can be great liars and very poor theologians with their screaming at me. So you better learn to go with what you know and not what you feel. But here's what I want you to hear that I think too many of you don't understand. It does matter what you feel and We do want to shoot for and say, God, give me more and more those times that I'm living what you say to live. And I feel it. I feel it. God is a God is a personal being. He actually has feelings and he made us with feelings. We're created in his image. We don't want to just stoically go through life saying I'm an obedient soldier of the Lord. I feel nothing. Nothing. Not what we're looking for. Now, my feelings will not always line up with the truth of what I should do, but oh, praise God for when they do, and may that increase. May that be more common. Here's what I would say to you. Once you decide what you believe God's word says we should do and know, beg him, beg him to light a fire and give you a passion for it. It matters what you feel as you fight this fight. You say, Brad, you're just making this up because you're a frothy, emotional kind of guy? Nope. It's in the passage. Oh my goodness, this passage is loaded with with intense, fierce verbs. Let me give you some examples. Look at verse nine. Show you what I'm talking about. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. He could have said, 
Watch out for evil. Tip your hat towards good. That's not how this is going down. Abhor. That is a strong word that means to detest vehemently, to find repugnant, and to pull back in horror. A lot of feelings going on there, I think, right? Abhor what is evil. You can become numb to evil because you're just so aware. Don't let it happen. Say, God, I want to still feel every time I hear of a tragedy. I want to feel the horror. What about good? What are we supposed to feel about good? Cling to what is good. And that word means to embrace it. Lay hold of it. Grab it. Draw it near. Love it. Now, to give you an indication of just what is going on here, I'm going to create an awkward moment but you'll never forget it. The same word cling to good is the same word being used in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in reference to the sexual union between a man and a woman. That indicates some of the intensity. That's how we're supposed to feel about good. I want it. I gotta have it. I wanna embrace that. John Piper put it this way. Christianity is not merely choosing lost my place. You've got it. Read it. The right thing. Christianity is not merely choosing the right thing. It's choosing with, say it, intensity. Let me ask you, is there any intensity about your Christianity and what you say you believe? There ought to be. I know we got different personalities, but within your God-given personality, if this for you is like wide open, I'm going nuts. To make sure it shows up regarding to what you believe about the Bible and spiritual things. Intensity. It matters what you feel as you fight. Let me show you some more that brings this out. Verse 11. Verse 11. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit. That word fervent right there in the original language means to boil up and bubble over. Boil up and bubble over. But it, it is the very opposite of apathy and indifference. Fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. Folks, surely you've sensed this as I have. Our world is filled with plenty of hatred today. But do you know what else I think is just rampant that is a step beyond hatred and I think is actually worse? Apathy and indifference. Because at least hatred has some intensity to it. We've got a culture that's beyond hatred. They just don't care. And it's captured by the little word, whatever. 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 Folks, verse 11 says the attitude of whatever will never get it done. Remember what Jesus said to the churches in, in, in Revelation, seven churches he rebuked? All of them still had some things right. One of the things that he said, this is so wrong. It's so wrong and it matters. It's not okay to just have sound doctrine, but you've lost feeling. There's no passion. There's no fervor. He said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 3, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, I will, excuse me, spit you out of my mouth. Whoa. There's what Jesus thinks about whatever. 
When you look at the words God chose to use in Romans chapter 12, here's a phrase that I think captures it well. Fierce love. See, too often when we hear love, I think we think passivity, settle into your favorite chair, your sweater, a friend you feel comfortable being around. All that may be true, but folks, love has more to it than that. There's, there's some stuff about love that that doesn't capture. And in this moment, I think this passage is wanting us to get a hold of fierce love. Fierce love. Because the word fierce means turbulent, vigorous, and furiously eager. Turbulent, vigorous, and furiously eager. Let me ask you, does that describe to any degree, none of us are perfect. We have bad days and good days, but to any degree, would that ever be true of the way you are living out what you say you believe? Furiously eager, turbulent, vigorous, or are you guilty of sound doctrine? As long as I got the right doctrine, I know what I believe and I think it's right. I'm gathering some other believers around me that got it right too. We are so right. But my heart and my attitude is whatever. That's not what this passage is saying. It matters how you fight. It matters what you feel when you fight. But let me show you something else from this passage. It matters where you start in the fight. Don't just jump in at any point willy-nilly. He tells us the places to start in this fight. And it might surprise you, but he points us back again. He's done this already. But he points us back again and says, start by killing your own stinking, say it, pride. Before you get all worked up about what's going on in the world and that person and that person and that person, start right here. Start right here. Here's where a fight needs to go on until Jesus comes with your own stinking pride. He hit it in verse 3 of Romans 12, but now he comes back to it again in verse 16. He says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Now, why would Paul hit this whole pride thing again? Apart from the fact that we just, we need it regularly. Because pride just doesn't die. You can wound it and you can think you've had a funeral and it just shows up in a different form in your life at a different place. So apart from that being true, Why else would Paul come back to this whole pride thing again? I'll tell you why I think. As I meditated on this and considered, I think pride gets in the way of you doing just about everything this passage tells you to do. It screws everything up. Let me show you one example. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Sounds simple enough, right? It's not complicated. But let me get you to think about this. When you're eaten up with pride, you can't do either one of those. You say, why? When you're eaten up with pride, you can't rejoice with those that rejoice because you're so busy thinking as you see it go down, that good thing that happened to them should have happened to me. I deserve it more. I've done more. I got all the things right. Why isn't that happening? You can't rejoice with them. You're envious because it's all about you and that just happened for them. You also can't weep with those who weep. Why? Because when you're eaten up with pride, you don't feel for other people because unless it impacts me, affects me, bumps my world, 
I would put it to you this way. Pride disables and cripples you emotionally. So some of you that may have thought, I've got to rejoice more. or I've got to be more compassionate. Consider going after pride. And see if you don't weep more and feel more for others. And see if you don't have a greater capacity to rejoice more for others. Pride gets in the way. So you can't even begin to love people well. Till you start working on this. And and notice I'm saying working on it. I'm not done. You won't ever be done. But be working on it. Be killing pride. So he takes us there first. Secondly, after that he says, and this might surprise you and sound like, oh, whatever. Start by loving Your own kind, Christians, right here in the family of God. You're like, is that a problem? Would you just fall off the turnip truck? If you've been in the church for a while, it's a problem. A pastor spends far too much of his time just trying to sort out the squabbles and hurts and problems between the believers that you say, for crying out loud, get along so we can reach the world for Christ. You're taking up all my time. I've had that thought once or twice, but I love you. Because this passage tells me to love you, so I'm still loving you. By God's grace. But oh my goodness, we struggle with this, right? It's not automatic. Like, oh my goodness, I love Jesus. He loves Jesus. She loves Jesus. We all love Jesus. This is going to be sweet. Just one big kumbaya. No, no, not. Why? Folks, think about it. We're still so different. Who... Who, where else in the world would you think this is a good idea and this is going to work? Right here in our own church family. Let me just give you a little idea of what we're talking about. In case you're still like drawing a blank. We got people right here in our church family that love country music. Gasp. We got people that love rap. Double gasp. We got people that love classical. Yes. We got people that drink to the glory of God. We got people that don't and don't think anybody should and wonder why you do. We got people that speak in tongues. Yes, here. And other people that think doesn't even exist. It's wrong. That gift ended. What in the world are they doing? We've got people who are very educated and people who are less educated. We've got people who grew up with nothing but concrete urban jungle and others that grew up with wide open spaces and fresh air. We've got people that think you should homeschool through high school if you love Jesus. What other choice is that? Are you an idiot? And we got other people that think partner with the Christian school and see that every subject is presented with a biblical worldview. And we got other people that say, use the public school, get involved, be there, know what's going on, make a difference. And your kids maybe will have to stand and decide what they really believe. All right here. We got people that vaccinate and people think that's the dumbest thing in the world and would tell you all day long, don't vaccinate. We got people that nurse on demand all through the night. Just give it to them when they want it. Give it. And others are like, do a schedule. I could go on. I'm a pastor. There's more I could say that we've run into. Right? That's all happening right here in this sweet place. How in the world are we all going to get along? This passage tells us how. Love. Real love. Fierce love that has some backbone to it. Because notice in verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor giving preference to one another. ESV gets it right. 
because everything there is strong in the original and says, outdo one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Instead of dissing what they think, dissing their choice, criticizing their choice, outdo one another in showing honor. Folks, that'll never happen with a limp, wimpy, lukewarm love. But the kind of love this is talking about, fierce love, that's how it'll happen. And some of you may be pushing back right now thinking, there's no way. I just come for the teaching and the singing. It's not the people. There's too many weirdos, misfits, emotional misfits and goofballs in this church and every church that I visit. Can't love these people. I would never have chosen these people for friends. Hold that thought. You still got it? Weirdo, goofball, misfit. God says, perfect. Because now you'll have to cry out to me to help you do what you could never do in your own strength. God didn't say it would be, news alert. God never intended to fill this church or any other church with people that were easy for you to love. And he never said it would be easy or natural. It's super natural. And so he intends for the local church to be the place where we practice love. So that there'd be any chance. What are the chances we'll do this out there with unbelievers that come at us and perhaps would even seek to harm us and malign us? Start here. Start with your own pride, then start loving your own kind. And let me show you another thing that might surprise you in this passage. Then he says, start by radically rethinking the place and purpose of your home as a place that this love should show up on a regular basis and be practiced. You say, how do you get that, Brad? Look at verse 13. It's that last phrase, given to, say it. Say it louder. Hospitality now. Let me help you. If as soon as I said that, you just thought, girly, doilies, Pinterest, Martha Stewart, eh, hospitality. You're missing it. The Greek word hospitality there is made up of two words. And it is the word philoxenia. One word is philos, love, xenos, foreigner, stranger, outsider. So stay with me. Hospitality is not a synonym for entertainment with your Christian friends or fellowship. You haven't even begun to obey verse 13 until you have into your home someone very different than you. That's hospitality. So don't think a game night with my best friends from small group. That might be koinonia and fellowship and there's a place for that, but that is not verse 13. Verse 13 is loving the outsider, the stranger, the foreigner, the one that's different than you. You could probably find some people differently. Now, this is awkward. Now, anyone that gets an invitation will know they think I'm really strange. That's why they're having me over. <laughs> trying to obey that last. Try not to think that when you get the invitation now. Really? Am I that? Hospitality. Even think about this. The word hospitality in the English has the word hospital in it. That points us in a direction, Right? Your home and what happens there when they come. People are wounded. People are broken. People are hurting. We don't have people growing up in the homes like they used to. Broken families, broken parents, abuse. On and on I could go. The walking wounded are all around us. What if we made our homes a hospital 
for an evening or an afternoon. And you're more focused not on food, but on feeding their soul and loving them, listening to them, refreshing them, encouraging them. Do you use your home like that at all? You should. That's what this is talking about. And see, we live in America, and it breaks my heart. So much has been made of entertainment. Folks, that's about you. The house has to be spotless. The meal has to be amazing. It has to be something so unusual that I downloaded from Pinterest, and I had to find a sheep, and it's a shank. It's a lamb, and it's an herb you've never heard of. Stop it. Get a box of pizza. And just humble yourself and make something simple, because really... When you entertain, too often it's still all about you. And that's why you do it so infrequently because it's such a big production. Hospitality could happen on a regular basis if our focus was, I'm really about more than feeding them food. I want to feed their soul and just give them a safe place. Hospitality. We need to, I could, there's more that could and should be said by this, but let me... Let me share with you a testimony. I think it's so neat how often God will put me somewhere and I'll have a conversation with someone that's perfect for the next sermon. So be careful when you talk to me. But I always get permission. Say, hey, would you be willing to let me share some of that? I had a conversation with someone. and I was like, this fits with my sermon. Listen to this testimony of someone in our church. And here's what I also think is cool. It's a guy. Hospitality and a guy. I know. Not doilies, it's not Martha Stewart, it's not frou frou. This is real stuff that men and women can do. Listen to what he says. And, I, and this is somebody I think is way ahead of me in learning and living this out. He emailed me this. He said, Since becoming a believer after college, I've bounced around a great deal. I've been a lonely nomad, dreaming about deeper relationships with other Christians. For all my dreaming, I consistently fail to tether myself to any particular local church body for any extended amount of time. Most Christians, it just seemed to me, were so different from me. I wanted community with those who were similar to me, with those likely to understand me. Consequently, I continued bouncing around and feeling alone. Shortly after coming to Grace Fellowship, I started biblical counseling. One of the most impactful lessons for me was that Christ himself understands suffering my suffering. My counselor gave me an article from Desiring God Ministries about how Christ understands loneliness and suffering. I had been guilty of clinging to the view that my particular suffering gave me the right to be selfish in my views of community and to demand that it look the way I wanted it to look. But Jesus' suffering didn't stifle his service and self-sacrifice for those whom he loved. As I was learning these weighty lessons, I love this, what he's about to say. As I was learning these weighty lessons, I began to notice something. I began to notice the people around me. I began to realize that these other people around me were individuals with struggles, sin issues, pain of their own. They were just like me. And so I got excited as I realized they need the same encouragement that I found. I could now serve them. Jesus' model of Christian community is incredible. (laughs) I like this too. His friends were total morons at times. Yes, they were. He experienced anguish that none of them could ever imagine. He was different than they were. Very different. If anybody could have ever said, y'all just don't get me. It was Jesus. But he didn't. 
and he didn't pull away or stop loving them. Getting a hold of that has shaped my admiration for the Christian discipline of hospitality. I realized I can serve others who feel alone because I know what that is like. I can open my home, serve a meal, share a cup of coffee, be an open ear or an open home to a Christian brother or sister. And then I appreciate his honesty. Listen to this. Do I like hanging around all my Christian brothers and sisters? No. Can some of them be annoying? Yeah. Yeah. Are they pretty different than me? Very. And he uses three exclamation points. Very. But listen to this. But even they are teaching me about our Lord. Lessons that I need to learn. I'm growing into the example of Christ towards others and experiencing ever more deeply how great his love is for me while in the process of loving and serving others. That's it. See, some of you want to be loved so desperately, but you just keep keep wanting it and looking around saying, love me, somebody love me. Why don't you start this? And in the process of recognizing everyone around you has similar issues and you choose to serve and love them and you tap into the love of Christ for you, you will end up getting what you've been wanting but not how you thought it was gonna happen. And let me add to it this, this dynamic. In the day that we're living, folks, with high tech, fast speed, everyone's so busy. Listen to me. Hospitality, love of the outsider, foreigner, stranger, I believe is one of the most effective, effective opportunities for evangelism. Open your home. I really believe the days of mass crusade stadium events where 40,000 people are packed in a stadium, you invited your lost friend to go there, the speaker's the size of an ant and is sharing the gospel, are not the most effective ways anymore. People, because of brokenness and disconnection, and people move and travel and are starved for the personal touch and to be in a home. You might not be able to preach a sermon or teach a Bible lesson. You could open your home. Feed someone food, but give them more than food. Open your heart to them and listen. Ask questions. International students, get this. Oh my goodness. International students are coming to America. Do you know what it costs us to try to put a family on the field and sustain them and try to, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. They're coming to America. They're here. They're in Kentucky. You wouldn't think so, but they are. Saudi Arabia and Japan, they're here. And here's the other thing. They are some of the brightest and best. Almost always, they go back to their country as some of the key influencers of that nation. I read an article that said 270 of the current leaders of nations right now got a college education in America. The question is, did they get an invitation from a Christian into their home while they were here? What an opportunity. I read another article that just broke my heart. Because here's what we don't understand in America. We're so private. We see our homes as this castle and I draw up the, the, the moat and I'm done. Not having people in. You kidding me? In other countries, it's expected and normal that you'd get invited over for a meal. They will say yes. They will say yes. They come expecting that they would get invited to an American's home. So I read this article. This, this international guy did four years of college with an American roommate in a community. And as he graduated and was leaving... He left a suitcase in the room and he said to his American roommate, hey, I'm just going to leave that for you. You can have it. He said, well, what is it? He said, it's a suitcase full of all the gifts 
that I was going to give to my American host when they would have me over for a meal. But no one did. Oh my goodness. They take a gift when they get invited to a home. He came with a suitcase full of gifts thinking he would be invited to homes for meals and he would give a gift. Nobody did. We're so busy. We're so private. We're so focused on entertainment instead of hospitality. Folks, we've got to rethink the place and purpose of our homes and our hearts. It could be a fantastic opportunity to reach people for Christ. And we've got a couple in our church serving in just this way. So if, if that Prick Junior thought, okay, maybe we could do that. Lewis and Megan Curd in our church, on our staff, do this full time at Northern Kentucky University that has lots of international students. And the goal is to connect those students simply with friendship and a home and a meal. And they will say yes. Their email is in the sermon outline. If you want to know more about this ministry, how you could, you could show love. Just ask questions about their religion, their, their home. What food do they miss the most? What about their family do they miss? What about their country do they miss? And then maybe... You just might share a little about your marriage or, or your friendships or your Jesus. He says, start by focusing on your own pride. Start by loving your own kind. Start by rethinking the use of your home. And then and only then he pushes it outside and then says, we're even supposed to do this with those who persecute us. And that's where verses 14 to 21 go. And it is radical. The only thing I want to thump right here regarding how we love those outside who might persecute us is I want you to look at verse 20. Notice the specificity and practicality of verse 20. He's not talking about just have some warm feelings towards your enemy and just don't punch him in the face. Far more than that. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. You say, what's your point, Brad? Here's my point. It brings us back to close proximity again. You can't meet a practical need if you're not close enough to know what they are. We're supposed to meet practical needs of our enemies, which means we're close enough to them that we know what's going on and we look for specific practical ways to love them and serve them. It matters how you fight. It matters what you feel as you fight. It matters where you start in this fight. But I will have failed you miserably if I don't add one more thing that matters because it matters so much. Because it brings us back to our Savior. It matters who you focus on. Who you focus on and who you follow in this fight. It matters who you focus on. We're not following the Republican Party. We're not following the Democrat. I could have said that earlier too. We got people here who vote Democrat. Yes! Yes, and Republican. Yes, even with the buffoon that is, you know, likely to get the... I could go on. (laughs) Folks, you need to recognize instead of sitting there thinking, oh, anybody that's got half a brain, obviously, blah, blah, blah. No, we got people right here with full brains that are going to vote very differently. That's why we don't promote any party or any candidate. We're here to promote Jesus the gospel and his kingdom that is going to change lives far better and longer than any other party. We make it about Jesus. We have people very different. What was my point? Hebrews 12. If we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, listen to what Hebrews 12 verse 2 and 3 says to a group of Christians that were suffering and were about to suffer more. It actually talks about how you're being drug off to prison and while you're in prison, 
People are plundering your house and taking all your stuff. And then those other Christians that go to visit you in prison, somebody plunders their house while they weren't home. These were rough times. Rougher than what we have right now. Listen to what he says, where our focus should be. Let us run the race with endurance. Fixing our eyes on, say it, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was put before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. For consider him, and that is a strong word. It means to look away from one thing and fix your sights on something else. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Why? Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. We got Christians that believe they're weary and discouraged because of the political situation. And we just should have and we need to. No, no. You are weary and discouraged because your eyes are fixed in the wrong place. He said if you fix them somewhere else, you'll get weary and discouraged in this fight. Focus on Jesus and we're following Jesus. So if he wants us to focus there, let me get you to look at his final hours. His final 72 hours on this earth. You don't have to wonder what would he say of everything he could say? What would he do of everything that he could do? The scripture doesn't leave us guessing. Go to John 13. These are the final 72 hours of his life on this earth. John 13. And follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he would depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think it's interesting, if, if you look at John 13 through 17, which is his final sermon and, and those hours of his life, love just goes turbocharged. It gets mentioned a handful of times in the Gospel of John, and from 13 to 17, those chapters, it gets it get mentioned 32 times. Love, love, love. He loved them to the end, and supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again. Oh, listen, you could have heard a pin drop. This is one of the most awkward moments ever. I think he just let the, the silence hang for a minute. And then he said, do you know what I've done? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then your teacher and Lord have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, folks, I know there's some churches that have turned foot washing into another sacrament and they wash each other's feet. Okay. I don't think that's what he was pushing. In that day, that was one of the most lowly and menial things. We don't really need someone to wash our feet. But what's that lowly thing, that unpleasant thing, that thing that everyone's hanging back saying, I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't serve. I'm better than that. I'm someone else. That's what he's talking about. Look what I did for you. 
If I then your Lord and teacher have washed feet, you ought to do it with one another. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Skip to verse 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you have, say it, love for one another. We know if you keep reading the gospel of John... If you keep reading the Gospel of John, you'll see that 12 hours later, after this foot washing, he was arrested, falsely accused, drugged through the night with a puppet court that never should have happened, that was completely illegal, spat on, mocked, beaten, stripped naked, and then nailed to a cross as a common criminal. And all his disciples fled. And from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Such love in the face of such evil. That's who we're following. That's where our eyes should be focused. Listen to me, Christian. There may be some of you that do need to wake up to the fact that there's a war and live for what matters most. But I think there's even more that need to recognize it matters how you fight. We got too many Christians spinning off and doing it in ways that God never called us to do it and it will not get it done. You cannot do what you think is the right end game in the wrong way and expect God's blessing. Do it God's way. Get your marching orders from your heavenly father. In his commentary on John 13, Skip Ryan says this, and I think it's so powerful. He says, I'm convinced that the most subtle temptation of our lives is not this or that obvious or gross thing, but the desire to be normal. Jesus calls us to lives that are not normal. It is not the normal life of having rights, of doing what we want to do, of building up our own prosperity, of being the person we want to be. When we follow Christ's example, we don't get normal. We get him. Some of you want more of Jesus, but you don't recognize the way you get more of Jesus close to you is you push past normal and you start living radically different you become like him and you get him and then he gives this final challenge he says every follower of christ should have at least one situation in his or her life where he or she is ridiculously absurdly irrationally giving himself or herself away don't be normal be a christian I want to ask you to bow your heads as the worship team comes back. I want you to just think for a minute what God might be telling you from this message. Because it's so radical. It, It impacted me radically this week as I studied. So I'm hoping there's a way that God might be speaking to you. What's he saying to you? Have you been too busy trying to capture the normal, middle-class American life, just add a Christian fish to the side of it? And are you ready to be Christian? Have you been guilty of treating your home as your refuge and castle with no place for opening it up for the one who is an outsider and love him? Have you been that Christian that's still guilty of 
no risk. I will not risk getting close to people. I've been hurt. Welcome to the world. We've all been hurt. Risk by getting close to other believers. Start there, loving other believers. And maybe you're that person here this morning that, oh my goodness, you desperately need to forgive somebody. Let it go. Let it go. In light of all he's forgiven you and how he's loved you, forgive. Oh God, I pray that you would work by your spirit in us. It's not all gonna happen overnight. This whole passage is not gonna show up in our lives this next week. But oh God, I pray there would be something, even if it's a baby step, that is different because you have spoken to us. Your word has impacted us. Your spirit has stirred us. And that our church would not just be known for being biblical, but be known for a fierce love, furiously eager to love other people starting right here and pushing out into the world. Oh God, use us. In Jesus' name, amen.